Hello, and welcome to Roots and Branches, the Pinewood Alumni Podcast. Join us as we dig into the captivating stories and remarkable journeys of the alums who have walked the halls of Pinewood School. Through this podcast, we'll reconnect with our past, celebrating the diverse experiences, achievements, and memories that have shaped not only our individual lives, but also the legacy of Pinewood. Our alumni have spread their roots far and wide, reaching out into various fields, industries, and passions. So whether you're a current student, a fellow alumnus, or simply curious about the power of education, come explore with us as we uncover the inspiring stories that make up the lush canopy of Pinewood's legacy. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Roots and Branches. Today, I have a special guest joining me, Chef Jason Raffin, an alum of Pinewood School. Chef Jason is um, a culinary maestro with a remarkable journey that began at the age of 14. His passion for cooking has taken him from renowned establishments in San Francisco to the vibrant culinary scene of Maui. Chef Jason is not only a talented chef, but also deeply committed to giving back to the community. Earlier this year, he faced the profound challenges of the catastrophic wildfires that swept through Maui in August 2023, where he lost his home and his belongings. He was due to open a restaurant at the time. Despite these setbacks, his commitment to the community relief, as seen through initiatives like Chef Collectives for COVID, remains unwavering. Today, we dive into Chef Jason's culinary journey, explore the influences and memories from his time at Pinewood School, and discuss the resiliency of Maui's food and small business community in the face of adversity. Chef Jason, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. It's such an honor to be the second person invited onto the show since it's been over a decade since I've attended Pinewood School. So thank you so much for having me. Welcome. So let's dive right into your story and your culinary journey. So your journey has taken you from working in restaurants at the age of 14 to becoming a chef with experiences in San Francisco and now as a private chef on Maui. Can you share some of the pivotal moments or influences from your early years that shaped your passion for cooking? Yeah, absolutely. So I always love food. Most people do. In my family, there wasn't, there were some home-cooked meals there, but the majority of our meals, my dad's a fifth-generation San Franciscan, and he grew up eating an eclectic amount of uh, different cultured foods, and he raised us to just have a broad palate and really appreciate delicious food. So I, from a young age, me and my brothers, we would fight over, I'm the middle child of my siblings, all of which attended Pinewood. I was the only one that saw it through to graduation, but we would fight all the time over food at the dinner table at outdoor restaurants. We feuded over deliciousness and I decided to take it up a notch and figure out how to make it just from a young age. So I actually, you said 14 years old for my first restaurant experience. Actually, my original experience in a restaurant was at 11 where my parents were out to dinner and they were talking about how I just, I had no experience. I didn't even know what recipes were. I was just like, I wonder what's in pasta, probably flour and eggs. And I would just throw things together without any idea what I was doing and fail. And that's the start of my career was just failing. And so they were out to dinner talking about all my concoctions and how I've just really enjoyed the kind of playful chemistry of it all. And the table next to them were the owners of Yank Sing, which is a famous dim sum restaurant in San Francisco. They overheard them talking about my kind of interest as a young kid. I was 10 or 11 at the time. 
and they invited my parents to allow me to come stage, which is uh, a term meaning to apprentice, essentially making dim sum at Yangtzeing. So my mom used to drive me there at 6 a.m. There's like a, a, a lower level basement with about 30 employees folding very intricate dumplings and a bunch of grandmas there doing a lot of the, the bulk work. And they took a shining to me and they would just have me sit next to them and they'd, they wouldn't serve a single dumpling I made. I was just a novelty to them. And then they put like an over, like a, a chef's coat that was like five sizes too big and had me push around the steamed carts. And it was an entire experience that, that was my first restaurant experience and seeing the underbelly of the entire industry. And from there, I got a taste and I just wanted to, I wouldn't say I was academically inclined. So I was more tactile. I like to use my senses, very sensory driven. And my parents, I think, saw that in me and helped guide me to figure out my passions, which is they just basically let me roam free. And then naturally, I had a proclivity to food and deliciousness. So did you actually have a lot of dim sum as a child growing up? I wouldn't say religiously, almost, but I'm Jewish. And we did have, we went to Hebrew school every Sunday and learned culturally about Israel and Judaism. And then afterwards, every Sunday, we would get dim sum at a local restaurant. It's no longer there called Ming's, but it was a tradition in our family. And my family, I wouldn't say had that many traditions. So even though we were like culturally Jewish and I, I would say the dim sum was more consistent than anything else. So it was definitely a source of consistency in my life. Dim sum translates to little bits of the heart. And I always just appreciated the diversity of flavors, how you can sit down, be fed immediately. You're eating little bites of different things. It's like your own tasting menu and everything about it just speaks to me. To this day, it's a style of cuisine that I think could easily be riffed on. And I have many concepts I want to do with dim sum in the future. I actually came up with a concept called some dim about 10 years ago that I wanted to open, which is a kind of a fusion dim sum restaurant, but, uh, my concepts took me another direction. So that's still on the, still in the back burner. That is so interesting. And I'm very familiar with Ming's on the peninsula here. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Jason, do you have a, a favorite lean in uh, in dim sum? Because dim sum can be such a, a large variety in um, different styles, different tastes. Different dim sum restaurants have their specialties, which I crave. Koi Palace, south of San Francisco, has the expre espresso ribs, which are amazing. I've always been a fan of Chun Fun, which is rice noodle rolls. I've actually done a variation where I did a uh, rainbow chen fun with sardic like caviar on top. So I do little plays on some dishes like that. I've always been a fan of anything char siu. Absolutely. Anything uh, pan seared or steamed. It, for me, it's more about the variety. I like just about everything. I think I, there's no foods that exist really that I don't quite love. I think everything has its place in the, the dichotomy of cuisine. And I just appreciate it all. Just sometimes I like fried mixed with steam. So there's no oil compared to totally crispy. And texturally, there's so many different variations. I can go on and on about it. I could honestly just list out every dim sum available. But that, those are the ones that kind of stick out for sure. That's great. So after you started apprenticeship a little bit at the age of 11, 
what was the next cuisine or next phase of your culinary journey? I kept experimenting for a couple of years. And then I believe it was the summer that I was 14 turning into 15 freshman year. I was actually able to work for money. You could sign up for the local high school. We went to Gunn or Pally and were able to get a worker's permit because I was always very independent, wanted my own money, wanted to work. And uh, it was not a double-edged sword, but killing two birds with one stone to just get some culinary experience while getting paid. So I worked at Evia Estiatorio, which I think you probably know off university, yep. which is a, an amazing Greek restaurant. I know my parents were friendly with the owner and got me in as a, a prep cook. And that's what really got me in uh, understanding that cooking isn't as romantic as people may think. It's a lot of hard work. And I would spend hours every day sifting through frozen squid and cooking out the eyeballs and freezing and just hard work to wash dishes there for the beginning. And then I did a little, a lot of prep work towards the end. And I even worked a line for lunch for a couple of shifts towards the end of that tenure. And yeah, then I went back to school and I just couldn't really balance that much school with working in the restaurant as easily. We made sure to move my work schedule to fit into holidays, mostly keep me busy, which then moved when I was 15. I got the opportunity to work with John Bentley. There was John Bentley's mm -hmm. and Woodside and Redwood City. Redwood City. So I was at the Woodside one yep. when I was 15. And then I moved to the Redwood City one when I was 18 which uh, John Bentley has been a tremendous kind of early mentor. He's been very generous with his time, his energy. Uh, I was unpaid there. So there was a little more freedom to kind of experiment. He was the first one to ever show me what agar agar is, which is a, a seaweed, a derivative that's used as a thickening agent to make like fluid gels. So he was the first one who was, hey, you can do this cool technique. This is how you do it. Go play in the corner. I need you to make some cinnamon rolls and some other stuff the next hour. What kind of gave me an opportunity to have fun because I was definitely a rambunctious kid getting into a little bit of trouble locally. And it was definitely keeping me out of trouble is just keeping me entertained and working towards a goal, which was culinary technique. And so after that, how did you move into the San Francisco food scene? Yeah, I had a brief stint at the Los Altos Italian Deli, mostly for free sandwiches. And then I graduated. I already knew I was going to do restaurant management, but through some mentorship with some chefs, they told me I should do restaurant management for your degree first. So I ended up getting going to school at UMass Amherst, which is a top five hospitality school. Did hospitality restaurant management. Like I said, my grades were decent, but compared to my, my other co-students, I was definitely on the lower half. They were definitely very more studious and... They would actually do homework at home and read the assignments at home. And they would follow the rules back then, which I was not really inclined to do as much. I always have gone through or figured out my path my own way. And that's the life of a chef. You got to figure everything out on your own. So I went to restaurant management school in Massachusetts. I wanted to get as far away from California as possible. I was just looking for a variety of experiences, a real college experience since Pinewood had a very intimate kind of exposure to the world. I wanted a very broad view. So I had a 26,000 student university, which is a five collegiate. There's a hundred thousand kids, I think in a couple square miles. So I really was able to jump into uh, a broader network. Throughout college, I was working 
I was running dining commons, doing a bunch of kind of side projects in the summers. I was actually dating a girl whose parents owned a very prominent restaurant in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I was able to learn from them. So they took me under their wing throughout. I would, we were together throughout my college career and I would spend all vacations. I didn't want to fly back to California. So I'd stay in Massachusetts and help out at the restaurant, learn how to do requisitions, a front of house manager and training, yeah, MIT. And they just gave me a lot of opportunities. And I was cooking at restaurants downtown Amherst at the same time. So I got a lot of experience in college because I've always, from a very young age, my father was a professor at Stanford Medicine, and he's always been just an amazing mentor. And he understands that if you point in a direction and you just work towards that as early as you can, and you just keep your eye on the prize that you're going to get there eventually. And he was a great source of inspiration to get me to keep my eye on the prize, which is being a chef is very romanticized and learning how to cook is anyone can do it. But the real part of being a chef is business. It's money. It's understanding numbers. It's being a mentor to your staff. It's being inspiring towards other people. It's doing the right thing. And cooking is a philosophy. Once you figure out the philosophy that you believe in, then you preach it. He basically helped guide me to know that I needed education first, which then after I finished my four-year degree, I immediately, after a summer of being a manager at my then-girlfriend's parents' restaurant, The Flying Rhino, which is still amazing on Shrewsbury Street, I then moved to Napa Valley to go to the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, which is by far one of the best culinary institutes in America. I think their legacy precedes them. There's just a host of amazing talent that's come out of that university. They know what they're doing. So I decided to get an associate's there. I had a nice little scholarship from having a four-year degree. I showed that I mean business. And then from there, I worked at probably 15 different wineries. I went to culinary school at the same time, working at Robert Mandavi, doing private events with Meadowood, which is a triple Michelin, helping out and filling in wherever Napa Valley kind of needed help. And then did an internship at Morimoto, which definitely, that was my first experience realizing that with Japanese precision, my style was very rustic and not apt at the time. And I needed to get myself into gear and focus more on precision rather than just having the fun of it. it you just have to work on every day, working towards being faster, stronger, more precise. And it's a 24-hour job. And you just got to really pay attention to every aspect of your life. So I really honed in on my skills in Napa for many years. And then eventually, I, I think I was around 23 at the time. I was young, been working really hard, and I wanted to go to the city. So that made me leave the kind of sleepy town of Napa behind. I lived in St. Helena, Calistoga, Napa proper, and then graduated and decided to hightail it to San Francisco, where I worked for what a Charles Fans restaurant who does Slanted Door, what kind of part of the opening crew for one of the restaurants. And from there, I turned 24 and then I was, I had an opportunity down the grapevine. I had a bunch of friends that worked in hospitality and there seemed to be a restaurant in the Marina District that was needing an executive chef. And even though I was probably too young and inexperienced to really take the role on, I jumped at it for multiple reasons. One, I've always in my entire life just gone into the deep water and just plunged in and figured it out. And then another one was living in San Francisco. It costs a lot of money. And the life of a line cook is, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, 
it's hard to survive with a $16 an hour paycheck while also probably staying out till 3 a.m., going out with your friends after you're done with kitchen service. So it's a rough life. Usually you have to find two jobs. And I just wanted to be able to create and use my skills so far. And we did a great job. It was called Bin 38. It was around for a while. I was their closing chef. I went in and they were in the red. And then I brought them to the black. So much so that the owners decided to sell the business. And they ended up selling it to some guys that owned a bar in the Hayes Valley. And then I basically just made, went up to him and was like, hey, I'm an executive chef. You guys just bought the restaurant. I will happily do some sweat equity and get in there and be the executive chef if you guys allow me to curate the menu. It's one less thing you guys have to worry about. Did a tasting with them. They agreed, jumped on as a, as a co-owner, even though it was a very small percentage, but gave me more authority in the industry and executive chef of Scotland Yard which was in the marina in the same space that they redid. And from there for a year, we just really did a great job. I hired a bunch of my friends, did bread in house, just a, an amazing program. That's where I got 30 under 30 with Zagat or Zagat, however you like to pr pronounce it and started getting some recognition in the city. I got a bunch of kind of local accolades and really started making a name for myself more as like a elevated bar food. That's been my shtick. And then from there I could keep continue going into, I don't know, maybe eight other restaurants throughout the time in San Francisco, bouncing around, opening Fintown Tavern, which was a tremendous opening and just moving around the city and staging all the while, which I mentioned earlier, staging is where you work for free and I get mentored for free. And I've always, my entire career to this day, I am looking to stage in I'm looking right now at maybe going to New Zealand and staging at a Michelin restaurant out there, which is basically you go to the restaurant, they'll feed you. And all you got to do is basically do whatever they say and help them out cooking and you just learn. So throughout my career, I probably staged in about 35, 40 restaurants. And it's basically free education of Michelin or wherever you want to stage. It's a free education as long as you're willing to work for free, which I've always been willing. And I constantly am working on so many different projects. It's, it's honestly just a tremendous opportunity. Anyone that's trying to get into the industry, I would say just work for free. And that can be a broad statement across multiple professions. Just work for free. It sounds like a great adventure that uh, you've had so far and great parents that you had that mentored you certainly to go get that four-year uh, education so that you can understand the, the business side of it to help support your passion of the cooking piece of, of all of that. So it sounds like a, a great match to do that. As an alum of Pinewood School, how do you reflect on your time there and the impact that it had on you personally and professionally? Are there specific lessons or memories that you experienced at Pinewood that sort of still resonates with you? Yeah. So my senior year, I got voted most spirited. I was definitely very animated, if you can't tell, just very much involved, but also not involved. I think my style of learning my creativity, the way that I held myself as a metal head. I was into raving at the time. I wouldn't say I would necessarily assimilate it into the culture of Pinewood a hundred percent, but it was a very generous environment to be able to be yourself. There was many students that had tough backgrounds or potential. They're incredibly smart and capable, but it was definitely an environment that seemed safe, which I thought was really important and catered to maybe more gentle types and 
intellectual types that I think I benefited from the culture of intellectualism, where I think that was respected more in Pinewood than if I went to another school. I think it would have been easier for me to fall into a different crowd that it would be easier for me to just sit back and relax a little bit more. There was more involvement. I think the class sizes were smaller. I think that the teachers took investment. David Campbell, who was our Spanish teacher, I'm still friends with them to this day. Uh, a bunch of the teachers from Pinewood have visited me in my restaurants as I move forward, which has been, I never thought at the time I would be the student. They'd be, they were, they were proud and they, they saw that I wasn't really the type of student that was, that I felt like I was built for Pinewood, but I was not in people like me that were more, like I said, more sensory driven, more maybe aggressive. Obviously I got most spirited. I like yelling. I like being involved. They saw that there is a special something. I even got the Spanish award my senior year, which I speak Spanish almost fluently now because of working in kitchens in, in California or even the US. You, I've always thought of most of my staff is not very, some of them are completely illiterate. They can't read or write. And they're from Central or South America. And I've always found that it's very respectful to try to communicate on their terms rather than have them understand me. And I've always had a back and forth. When I was at Bin 38, when I took it over as my first executive role, no one there spoke English. So I had to learn. And I think I learned more Spanish in six months, expediting and creating in Spanish and just shooting the shit with the other employees than I did in four years of Spanish. Even though Mr. Campbell was great, David Campbell, who's he's in San Francisco, he's fantastic. We still, he's visited me in Hawaii. We're still great friends. And uh, yeah, I've just been very lucky to feel like I was seen, which I think in other schools, you wouldn't be seen as easily. Yep, definitely. Where's some of the uh, things that you did at Pinewood? Where, did you play sports, part of the arts department? Yeah, I dabbled. I was more of a dilettante with sports. I was never really great at anything. I dabbled in tennis, did track and field. I, was de I ended up being the captain my senior year, but what, not to say that I was excellent or anything like that. Cross country. So yeah, I was, I just liked exercise. Physicality was really important to me. However, I got it, pick up games of basketball, pick up games of just about anything. I jump in there. So that's sports. I would say for the drama department, I, the great thing about Pinewood is that you're involved with plays and musicals. And I remember I was the lead in one play, I think Schoolhouse Rock, which was thrilling to be the lead in a play. I forget what year that was with Mr. Doug Ivers, who was always so kind to me and forgiving. I remember I was on, I was a little dork when I was in the seventh grade. He was the captain of the flag football team. And at the time I was having a lot of injury problems. My feet was having some problems. I, I feel like it was like plantar fagitis or some other problems. And he would make us run drills and my feet were killing me. And I was like, I can't run drills. And eventually he just gave up. I was like, okay, you can't run. And it's something I actually regret to this day. Just like being the kid on the sideline with quote unquote foot problems and letting him down because he was, he's such a great source of uh, energy for the school. And I think you told me earlier that he's still there today, which is remarkable. And he's a good, he's a good guy to keep around. So I'm happy for that. Yeah, absolutely. Mr. Ivers is definitely still part of the drama department, performing arts department. You are right when you say he is one of the kindest people and in, in just uh, supporting the students and seeing them where they are. Let's talk a little bit about the Chef Collective for COVID. 
the nonprofit initiative that you founded. It's been instrumental in addressing the community needs and especially during the challenges of COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit more about the initiatives and what drove you to that? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually never planning on staying in Hawaii. I was, my sights were set. My friend was working at a, a triple Michelin restaurant in Italy. And my friend was one of his pastry chefs. And I was looking to just stay in Hawaii for three to four months, maybe get a little side job. My friend was living here at the time. I could crash on the couch. And then from there, go to Italy and stage, like we were talking about earlier, for a year or so and just live frugally. And so I got here. I got a, a job as an R&D chef at one of the best restaurants here, which is Merriman's. And then from there, after seven weeks, I realized that they weren't as inclined for R&D as more of just a manager. That was, I learned just about everything. I was expediting. I was, I knew all the dish recipes. Everything was straightforward because I absorbed, when I work in a kitchen, I absorb things pretty quickly since I've worked in so many. I was planning to leave two or three months later and suddenly the restaurant closed, COVID took off and I figured I was in a safe space and I had another couple months on my lease. So I decided to stay in Hawaii. From there, within two months of COVID taking off, I think it was like March, right? My birthday's in June and I was really investing in my health. And there was a private gym my friend owned that I would go work out. I was investing in culinary technique. I was also being potentially poached. I won't name the, the hotel, but for a very boutique relay chateau at the time. It was a $2 million kitchen alone, not restaurant, just gorgeous space. And I was, I was in my third round interviews with them to lead the entire crew. And I was focused heavily on technique. And I decided my 30th birthday uh, to do something called 30 for 30. So I was going to create 30 original dishes on my 30th birthday in one day. So I spent couple days creating a uh, little kind of aspects of each dish. I had no idea. I had basically a broad idea of what I wanted to do. And then from six in the morning until about eight o'clock at night, I live streamed creating 30 original fine dining dishes in 16, 18 hours, which was a feat. And my friends just came to visit me. They'd see me. At the time, I was just heavily invested in technique, learning the history of Hawaii, learning the culture, learning the ingredients. How could I riff off it? and just enveloping me into the culture more. Cause that's where I like to create. I'm all about creating original content, original food with a story and that showcases culture. So I then, from there I raised money cause I didn't know how I wanted to use the money but I basically did a GoFundMe and I started with a fund of like around $10,000 that I was gonna give to a local charity. And from there I just took a second, I had a bunch of, I had a, one of my good friends that I, he helped me design a couple of restaurants. He reached out and we started talking about, I think the money would be best if I utilize it. I don't trust, I don't know these foundations. So much in San Francisco, I used to do No Kid Hungry and the food bank and FEMA. And even through this crisis right now, I'm seeing the way they use their funds and I'm happy that I invested in myself. So at the time, I had the option do I want to spend six months getting a 501c3 and going through the proper channels? Or do I pair up with another entity that has one and I'll be an initiative through them? So I basically phoned up about 30 different places. Because it was COVID, I had plenty of time. Yeah. 
I just basically, whenever I focus on something, I had a designer basically work on all the design work for it. I had a photographer working on all the photography for kind of figuring out what we were doing. And then I was reaching out to 501c3s and I finally landed on Lahaina Baptist Church, which they agreed. They were already doing work with food drives, but I was looking more towards doing multi-course guest chef tasting menus every two weeks, which were hand-delivered to the doors of the Kapuna, which is the elders of the community. As during COVID, many people were unable to leave their homes, especially of a certain generation. At that time, I read How to Feed an Island by Jose Andres. Yeah, Andres, that's right, not Garcia. And that kind of inspired me to just be like, he talks about going to Haiti and places or Puerto Rico and giving big bowls of paella or gumbo and like stews. And for me, I think that works. I think there's a need for that. People need a broad, like thousands of people, which I've seen during this crisis be happening. But I was focused on top quality, Michelin quality, fine dining food that's then brought to people directly. And it's more than giving someone just food. It's showing them compassion, care. We took time to create this. There was effort and energy with precision and really just flex our culinary guns and allow other people in Hawaii who were at home without their restaurants, other chefs, other line cooks, anyone involved in the hospitality industry, an outlet. So I was saying, anyone that want, I called all the top dogs, all the best chefs that I looked up to at the time and did my research that I was like, I would love to collaborate with this person, reached out to them directly. I would say 95% of them agreed to uh, help out and just do a menu. And basically what we would do is there'd be a three course menu, typically appetizer, entree, dessert. We bought all the to-go boxes and I did a, another round of funding. And I think we got 20, 30, $40,000 involved, which I gave to Lahaina Baptist Church. They then would send us volunteer drivers. So we had about 20 drivers and refund receipts that are involved with it. So any to-go boxes, any Anything involved, which included also renting out a commissary kitchen, Lahaina Loft, which by the way, after the fires, which I hate to jump the gun, but there is no longer a Lahaina Loft. There is no longer a Lahaina Baptist Church. So both of my entities, which will come into the story later. So we then started doing multi-course tasting menus, about 200 to 300 each meal, three course, delivered directly to homes of those sick and need Kapuna mostly lots of cancer patients and people that just needed a little extra more than just the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which is what with some of these larger organizations, but you get an apple and a roast beef sandwich. We're doing like crazy paca paca seared with risotto and burp blanc with microgreens from the farm. But I guess just behind one of the facets of the business that I really wanted to showcase was that we were funding local farms directly. So I was really focused on the local community. At the time, I was friendly with a bunch of farms there, Okoa Farms, OO Farms, Hulamona Farms. And I was literally going to the farmers, contacting them directly saying, hey, I have these funds. I would also love to educate all these chefs. Can we bring the chefs and the cooks to your farm, harvest vegetables, introduce more of a farm to table education sector of it. At the same time, we would process and then bring back to the loft where we, as a commissary kitchen, we produce the food. So Kumoto Farms ended up being 
the most receptive, the most giving, the most kind of understanding of my whole core concept. And basically we're just working with them was very easy. So it was just the natural progression to continue working with them. So I would once a week or once every two weeks, bring out about a team of about 10 to 12 people. We would hand harvest all the vegetables because at the time the farm, I think only had three or four employees for a 25 acre farm, which is a lot of space for a few employees to deal with. And we would write checks to them and just harvest the vegetables directly and really create a connection. And I have so much pictures and videos and of that with the Chef Collective. So we did that for two years. And then for a multitude of reasons, I ended up separating from Lahaina Baptist Church over the last nine months, not to mention that it burned down after the fires, which probably will lead into your next question, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Because that is the, the next thing I was going to touch on is that the, the wildfires in Lahaina must have been incredibly challenging, resulting in the loss of your homes and all of your belongings. Can you share sort of how this experience has either reinforced or reshaped your understanding of community resiliency, especially concerning the immediate supports for locals and the shared sense of community? Yeah, no one was expecting this. It's a really, I live in Lahaina. I'm still here. Obviously, my house burned down. I lost my businesses. Not only did that happen to me, that happened to every single person I know here almost. So it's, my, our community was very tight knit. I would walk everywhere. I would walk to the grocery store. I'd walk to the gym. I would go to the beach right down the street. I would recognize everyone within walking down the street. I'd probably run into five people I knew. It was a very tight knit community and familiar and loving and just good vibes everywhere. And it was a, a travesty to just see not just your personal loss, but seeing the loss of people you care about and watching everyone fumble through this environment. Everyone was very ill-prepared. The most I have ever seen the community of Lahaina come together was 10 days after the fire, where everyone knew that everyone else was hurting and was doing everything they could to help their neighbor, to do everything they could to make other people feel good. 95% of the community was just involved. It was a team effort. Gary, the owner of Humamoto Farms, gave me the opportunity to work within their farm. At the, at, up until that point, I was just a customer, essentially, someone that was buying vegetables. My friend Zach, one of my best friends, he was off on vacation, essentially, at the time. And he didn't want to come back to not having a home, so he just stayed on vacation. I just knew inherently I have to use my skills, which is restaurant management, building systems, leading teams, and culinary, obviously, to give back and just to help. I probably worked 60 days straight, 16-hour days, just cooking, upping our quantities. I didn't really have that much of a feel for what was going on in the rest of the island because, you know, everything that life does, we knew it was gone. And... There was definitely a sense of trauma and every time that my life has always had, you know, there's definitely been ups and downs. And whenever things go down, that's when I dig into the ground and work the hardest. And that's always the way I like, dig my way out of any trouble I've ever encountered. So it's all I knew. And it's honestly, luckily, it's what I've been trained for and just continually 
striving towards helping others. And there was no real end in sight. It was just helping your neighbor as much or the rest of the island as much as you can. And everyone was doing that. The first 60 days was no one took a day off. No one was taking beach days to chill. There was none of that. And so how are things now? I think now I think people have learned you can't be working seven days a week, 16 hours a day, stuck in the trauma loop of giving to other people because you need to fill your own cup first. So you can't, you're worthless. And I've always known this, multiple restaurants, I always give 150% and it ends up with me being, I've worked over a hundred days without a day off three times. So I know I'm just overly passionate and willing to give more than my soul to my passions. We were sprinting before. Now we've saddled up and figured out the flow of existence for the next year or two and are now gearing up for a marathon of kind of stability and figuring out how much is viable and also filling up your own cup as far as making money having a future. A lot of my friends have families and they're still in hotels. There's no real end in sight. People, FEMA maybe wants to move them two hours away to a remote jungle. People in Lahaina want to stay in Lahaina because like I said, I know so many, it's not even just knowing people. It's I can't go anywhere without feeling a sense of community and family. People don't want to leave that. Different parts of the island have different vibes and we have a very specific vibe here that is the reason why it's one of the hubs for tourism. There's just so much aloha and so much love and so much opportunity as well. And I think yeah. people are in their own ways navigating how to capture that 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 opportunity. Yeah. Talking about um, tourism and the reliance on it, how do you see the recent wildfires as impacting the island's food and the small business community in the long run? You can just see the numbers. They're online, very prevalent. Tourism's down, I think, 50%. is a touristic economy. Pretty straightforward as far as that goes. People are hurting. Small businesses are hurting. Large businesses are probably thriving because people are don't have very much money, so they're going to go to Walmart. They're going to go to Costco. I think the federal government's not involved as much as it should be, but that's to be expected. I would say it's not looking great. I would say it was bad before, and now it's exacerbated through half the community being displaced. Is there enough food on island? Absolutely. Is it cost effective for these people to have it? No. Luckily, there's hubs still that are allowing people affected to have free food. I'm cooking for 400 people tomorrow by myself to do an event, helping the Napili Hub, helping to deliver to personal homes. Through your chef's collectives? Yeah, this now it's the Chef Collective has transformed. I basically got absorbed by the farm and now I'm the executive chef of the Hulamoda Foundation, which is a 501c3, which now I basically work full time doing this through the farm. And I get to use that's what I've always wanted is basically using farm fresh ingredients, working with a delivery system through HHH, Hungry Heroes Hawaii, which is a whole other nonprofit that started during COVID that was tackling homeless food security and now has broadened their views and now our delivery system and they, we, there's a back and forth with them as well. Yeah. 
So what's next uh, in store for you? You mentioned a little bit about New Zealand. Is that like in the near horizon? No, honestly, I'm too busy right now. I was planning on going there in February. I have a tattoo artist where I was going to get some work done. And he knew some Michelin chefs out there that we were going to do just a little couple weeks. But this was planned out before I was working for a foundation, before I had the responsibility of feeding people. And I have a very small team of volunteers, mostly. What's on the horizon for me? I'm running four different things right now. One is the foundation where we're working five days a week, putting out food to the community. We're up to, I think, about 32, 34,000 meals we've done in the last three months, which is farm fresh, fine dining cuisine, which you can see pictures on my Instagram or anywhere else online of the food we've been putting out, which is definitely higher level. I run a private chef catering business, which I lost everything in the fires for that. Now I'm rebuilding it. I've got a bunch of private gigs I got to do to continue forward with that, build that business, build it back up, just keep acquiring equipment. Then I have my cookbook. I wrote a cookbook three years ago called Keto Like a Chef. That is finally, I got publishers about nine months ago to agree. It takes a long time. I found out to get a book all the way through the finish line. You can actually find it on Amazon or Target or all across the web right now, Keto Like a Chef. I was keto for a brief period of time during COVID, wrote a book with one of my best friends, Keith, who's actually an alumni. Almost, he might be an evergreen of Pinewood, which we've remained friends amazing editor and photographer. And we lived together in Hawaii for about six weeks to eight weeks and both did keto, documented the entire thing. I did elevated fine dining cuisine with keto, which has never been done before and did uh, an amazing technique driven cookbook with keto. So we're creating all types of content for that and working on commercials and we're working on a bunch of content essentially for that as well. We're creating a huge YouTube channel with a variety of networks to allow us to multitask. So as I'm doing my cooking, I cook seven days a week. Now we can have multiple cameras document it, a s- availability to take high-res pictures of all the food I'm cooking on a daily basis, and then transforming that into whatever we want in the future. We have a bunch of show ideas. We have a bunch of experimental YouTube channel, TikTok. Instagram. As much as I hate social media, it's the future and we got to work within the framework. We're on a podcast right now. So <laughs> so yeah, I'm just working towards all of those goals. And then I'm just super I'm busy. I'm working 100 hours a week, just gearing towards this and keeping my girlfriend happy in the meantime. <laughs> so as, as an alum of um, Pinewood School, is there a message you would like to convey to fellow alumni and supporters, especially considering the challenges faced by the Maui community and the ongoing relief efforts? Yeah, I would say we're far from being finished with work here. I'm doing this indefinitely. I would love for people to feel free to donate to the Mono Foundation. I would say you can look us up online. You can go to my Instagram at J-R-R-A-F-A-T-A-C-K-E-R, J-R-A-F Attacker, Jason Raffin Attacker, old handle. Stay in contact, travel to Maui, spend money in Maui. The tourism needs it. Anything I can do to help alumni contribute back to the Maui community and definitely more exposure, more exposure of the plights that my community's had. And this works for four years. They haven't even started removing structures that are, everything's melted. It's incredible. It's a sight to be seen, but definitely don't be afraid to come out here. Everyone's still incredibly nice. There's been a lot of 
controversial media of, you know, people are trying to heal, but also it's a society that's dependent on tourism. So anything, just keep, you know, I would say more than keeping Maui in your prayers, keep them in your pockets and definitely give back. Money talks, spend money. Doesn't have to be with me. Could be with me and my organization. We'd appreciate it, but I'm just open to anything that helps the community here move forward and heal. And most of these people, I don't cook food to for only people that need food. I'm cooking food to stop people from paying 10, 15, $20 for lunch and making sure they keep that money in their pocket. This is not about people that are starving. This is about people that need to maintain as much funds as possible so that they're able to live their lives and support their families and not spend their money as food prices have soared up 250% in the last three, four years. And people aren't making as much money here simultaneously. It's inversely directly correlated. People need help and they need to have security. And we're not, my main focus is to save people money. And we're using private funds now to do that. This is luckily out of the goodness of Gary, who's the owner of the farm, his goodness of his heart. He got me employed within the foundation. He's given me a place to stay. He's taking great care of me, my girlfriend, the rest of the farm. He has about six farm employees that are now housed. He's taking it upon himself, but this is out of his own pocket and we're looking for as many donors. We're doing tons of dinners. It's a lot of, as we develop in the future, there's so many opportunities to be involved with us. If you ever visit Maui, always welcome to come up and check it out and join in on the festivities and cutting vegetables and peeling carrots and cooking some fun stuff or go to the field and work the farm. We allow people to jump in the farm five days a week and go pick beets and prune vegetables and pick lily koi, which is passion fruit. Just lots of opportunity. That sounds wonderful, Jason. Thank you so much for your time um, again today. Let me just, uh, as we're wrapping up here, let me plug your book again. What's the name of your, your cookbook? Yeah, absolutely. It's Keto Like a Chef. You can find it on Amazon or all over platforms. It's going to release in July. As many pre-orders as I can get, that helps the algorithm. Everything's algorithm these days. So selling as many pre-sales puts it higher up on lists. If you just look up Keto Like a Chef, Jason Raffin. Also, my Instagram is, once again, jraffattacker. Feel free to re reach me on there. Contact me if you want any involvement. And then the Humota Foundation, Humota Farms, easily found on Google. 501c3, any money given is tax credit. So we have all the tax IDs. It's a legit 501c3 nonprofit that you can just support. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much again for your time. What an incredible story you have. And we're just so proud of you as an alum of Pinewood and all the great things you're doing. And for all of our listeners, go visit Jason out in Maui, help the community out there and support Jason's effort in what he's doing. Yeah. And anyone else, do you have any friends that need a private chef, caterer, anything like that out here? Weddings, we have a wedding venue capable of anything broadly. Great. Thank you so much again. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And that is another inspiring episode of Fruits and Branches that comes to a close. We hope you enjoy this journey through the diverse paths our alums have taken, from their roots at Pinewood to the branches that have reached far and wide. These stories remind us that our time at Pinewood School 
was just the beginning of a lifelong adventure, and the connections we forge here continue to shape our lives in unexpected ways. Thank you for tuning in and for being a part of the celebration of our shared heritage. Remember to subscribe, share, and stay connected as we continue to explore the ever-growing branches of the Pinewood alumni community. Until next time, this is Roots and Branches, where Pinewood's legacy continues to blossom.